Our next reading is from Luke chapter 2. In those days, a decree was issued by the Emperor Augustus for registration to be made throughout the Roman world. This was the first registration of its kind. It took place when Quirinius was governor of Syria. For this purpose, everyone made their way to his own town. And so Joseph went up to Judea from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to register at the city of David called Bethlehem, because he was of the house of David by descent. And with him went Mary, who was betrothed to him. She was expecting a child, and while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born, and she gave birth to a son, her firstborn. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them to lodge in the house. Now in the same district there were shepherds out in the fields, keeping watch through the night over their flocks. When suddenly there stood before them an angel of the Lord, and the splendor of the Lord shone around them. They were terror-stricken. But the angel said, Do not be afraid. I have good news for you. There is great joy coming to the whole people. Today in the city of David, a deliverer has been born to you, the Messiah, the Lord. And this is your sign. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. All at once there was the angel, with the angel, a great company of the heavenly host, singing praises of God. Glory to God in highest heaven, and on earth his peace for men of whom his favor rests. After the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Come, we must go straight to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they went with all speed and found their, their way to Mary and Joseph, and the baby was lying in the manger. When they saw him, they recounted what they had been told about this child, and all who heard were astonished at what the shepherds said. But Mary treasured all these things and pondered over them. Meanwhile, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for what they had heard and seen. It all happened as they had been told. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, in the midst of the many words, both within and without, may we encounter you, the living word. May you too be born anew in us this night in which we celebrate your birth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. My first job after seminary was at First Presbyterian Church in Midland, Texas. And I loved to go down to the Davis Mountains. Now, they were these volcanic mounds that just jutted out, out of the Permian Basin. If any of you remember those old cowboy movies where the Apaches were in the mountains, those are the mountains they were in. And uh, it was an amazing place. The McDonald Observatory was in that area as well. So they controlled all the outdoor lighting for like 40-mile radius. Uh, so it was an amazing place. And Fort Davis was just kind of a crossroads. There was a pharmacy that had an old-fashioned um, you know, ice cream shop in it, a few stores. But it basically, there were ranches that surrounded the area. And one ranch, Prude Ranch, had been turned into kind of a dude ranch, but it was also a place where you could have retreats. So I took a bunch of high school kids down there. Uh, it was the first Sunday of Advent. And uh, we had a great time. I brought one of my friends back from the east, and he was speaking. And he and I had a little time to kill, and we were out uh, uh, by, the, uh, by the horse stables, and one of the young workers was there. We just started talking to him. And he told us that they had a satellite that provided TV for the whole area. Okay, now this is the late 90s. 
pre-internet. So this one satellite provided, you know, everybody around Fort Davis got their television from this one satellite. And he said that it had gone out in September. I said, well, did, did you get it fixed? He goes, no, you haven't got it fixed yet. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you do? He goes, well, we talk, we ride horses, we look at the stars, he goes, and we ponder things. Now, I don't know what impressed me more, this idea that this 16-year-old, 16-year-old could be content without TV, or the fact that he used ponder in a sentence. But it struck me that uh, perhaps there's no greater irony in this season because this has become associated with greed and spending and accumulation and people are also tired during this season because we're all rushing around to get ready. Yet the night that we observe here was a night about humility. It was a night about poverty. It was a night about renunciation. Mary pondered all these things in her heart. In Luke's gospel, Mary is the first disciple. She is the bridge figure from how God related to his people of Israel and to the beginning of the new dawn that her son would usher in. And so Luke is very purposeful about uh, portraying her, of, of creating a picture of her, if you would. Tradition has that Luke was an artist. Of her being the person who says yes to God. She says yes to the amazing uh, announcement of the Annunciation. She says yes to God of his coming salvation. And in the last weeks of her pregnancy, she travels a long distance to give birth away from her kinsman, kinswoman, She's just a kid. And she gives birth to a baby in a barn. Actually, it was in a cave, most likely. And yet, in the midst of all this, is the greatest event in the history of the human race. Maybe in the history of the cosmos. Anne Dillard, in her great book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, says this. The answer must be, I think, that beauty and grace are performed whether or not we will or sense them. The least we can do is try to be there. I think tonight we're invited to ponder with Mary. Stop and take a look to be open to the grace and beauty that's not only around us in ordinary things, because there's so much grace and beauty in every day, but the extraordinary beauty, the extraordinary grace that's revealed this night. So I wondered, well, what did Mary exactly, did she ponder? What did she think about? And, and I think the most natural thing she pondered was she just gave birth to her first child. And motherhood, parenthood, changes us, right? Um, it opens up things to us that we didn't even know existed. Um, I remember each birth of my children vividly, uh, the four best days of my life. And I remember when my eldest was born, I was no more than a, much of a kid myself. I was more kid than a man. But I was so excited. And, you know, I forgot. I didn't sleep. Of course, you didn't sleep. And I had forgotten to eat. And finally, one of my friends said, all right, Bill, you have to eat. It's been a long time. So 
he takes me out uh, to a gourmet dinner at the Pizza Hut right across the street at the hospital. And I walk into Pizza Hut, and I announce to everybody in Pizza Hut, I'm a dad. And uh, they clapped and then just wanted me to shut up at that point. You know, the interesting thing is that there's something that we can experience when suddenly there's something in the world bigger than anything we've ever known. And it expands our hearts. I shared this a number of times that when my dad came out of his stroke, there was this explosion of love in a way that I'd never heard him speak before. And, and all the barriers were down. And when he was telling me how much he loved me, it, it, it made me think about uh, this is what he must have been like uh, when I was born, before all the things that complicate lives, right? Before we get older and before, you know, we have histories with each other. And, and Mary pondered the love that was born that night in her heart. And it was the love of the cosmos. Because those of us who are imperfect, you know, we are able to love. And we are able to love how be it imperfectly, but if we really love someone or we've really been loved by someone, then we have a taste of what's behind the mystery of this night, that God so loved us that he became one of us, that he came here because he loved us, because his heart was so big it had to express itself in solidarity with us. I think she also pondered how much pain she was in. <laughs> she just gave birth to a baby, her first baby, in a cave with no pain medication. And of course, her body had changed. Her body had been broken. Um, I think I mentioned in this past week, um, half of all babies born um, in the ancient world didn't survive a year. The maternal mortality rate was extremely high as well. So literally, Mary had been just to an inch of her life that night. And so she reflected on how her body had changed and the pain that she was in. There's something about God becoming human that it is a loss. There's a sense where the absolute one is made vulnerable. The mystery of God becoming flesh, in some levels, is a breaking within God. There was a movie that my kids used to love to watch, The Last Unicorn. And there's a scene where this unicorn is turned into a woman to be saved. Alan Arkin is the voice of the wizard. Mia Farrow is the voice of the unicorn. And as she becomes a woman to be saved, she cries out. She goes, I feel death. I feel mortality. And I think beyond our imagination is this idea of somehow the immortal, invisible one, the holy, holy, holy one, the one of whom we cannot really know or speak, somehow was present in that baby. 
and felt pain, felt hunger, felt cold, would die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says this, God does not seek the most perfect human being with whom to be united, but takes on human nature as it is. Jesus Christ is not the transfiguration of noble humanity, but the yes of God to real human beings. Not the dispassionate yes of a judge, but the merciful yes of a compassionate sufferer. What happens to him happens to human beings. It happens to all, and therefore to us. The name of Jesus embraces in itself the whole of humanity, the whole of God. Just like Mary's body will never be the same, in a very real sense, God is changed. In heaven, whatever that will be, it's, it's a mystery, we don't know. Um, most of what people think about heaven has, is not in the Bible. But we are told in the resurrection narratives that Jesus will have scars. We're told that we get new bodies in the resurrection. But the resurrected Christ had scars. Becoming human, embracing the suffering and evil and violence of this race of ours, cost God something of infinite value. I think the other thing she pondered is, can I really do this? <laughs> There's a moment as a parent when suddenly reality hits you. Okay, you know, It didn't hit me in the pizza hut. Um, it didn't hit me you know, when I was at the hospital. It didn't hit me as I was driving home. But you bring the baby in and and you, and you go, well, all right, what, what's next? And they don't tell you it's like, like it's forever. <laughs> In other words, what's next is like the rest of your life. That's what's next, right? And any honest parent, any honest teacher, any honest human being, when faced with life gives us, <laughs> says at one point or the other, can I really do this? Can I really do the things that I am called to do? Can I really care for this child? Can I really be the human being that I need to be? The two unique ideas that Christianity contributes to, if you would, the virtuous life. Okay? There's a great long history of virtue that goes before Christianity. Matter of fact, most of the good ideas came from either the Greeks or Judaism. But two unique ideas that Christianity throws in there, and two that we try to avoid at all costs, if we really are honest with each other, is humility. Humility as a virtue is a uniquely Christian idea. And the idea that love is the highest aim is also a uniquely Christian idea. But both love and humility require some self-limiting, right? There's a great Jewish mystic, Rabbi Loria who says that when God created, God had to pull back. Because before God created, there was only God. And that the act of creation is not so much an act of power, but an act of humility. To allow someone else to exist, to allow another 
group to exist, to allow a world to exist, to allow you and I to exist. There's something that we need to ponder this night, and that is the mystery of we are not able to do this life on our own. Mary will make mistakes. Okay? Mary will question if Jesus is out of his mind. That's in the Gospels. I recently got this advertisement. Well, I got an email, and I, I deleted the email. It was trying to sell me Sunday school material for our children. And it said, use this material, and you will create doubt-free children. Okay. I don't know if there was some drug that was related to you to them, but it has such a wrong understanding of what faith is. There is no faith if there's not doubt. Doubt whether or not this may be true, that's part of it. It certainly begins with some self-doubt. I don't think I can do this. Peter Yancey said, where there is no longer any opportunity for doubt, there is no opportunity for faith either. I think before Mary passed out that night, she probably breathed a prayer saying, God help me do what I need to do here. Isn't that the most honest prayer we can, we can pray about everything? God help me to do what I need to do. I believe, help me in my unbelief. I think finally, what does she ponder? I think she ponders the miracle of it all. The mystery of it all. What does this all mean? You know, love when it's real, or at least if it's flirting around the real, is always analogous to faith. Faith when it's real, or at least hungering for the real, is actually either love, seeking, or finding. The mystery of this faith, the mystery of what we talk about tonight, what we sing about, maybe it is the center of your life, maybe it's an idea you used to believe, maybe it's a sentimental notion, but lurking in the edges is this idea of that we believe love came down to earth. And love changes this world one person at a time. Dietrich Bonhoeffer again said, what a mistake it is to think that the task of theology is to unravel God's mystery, to bring it down to the flat, ordinary wisdom of experience and reason. Is the task of theology solely to preserve God's wonder as wonder, to understand, to defend to glorify God's mystery as mystery, to kneel before the altar, to kneel before the manger in silence and wonder of the mystery of God's love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote that to a group of seminarians who were meeting illegally in 1939 because they were opposing the National Church's alliance with Hitler. Almost everybody who read that letter died either in prison or on the Eastern Front because the Gestapo came in, shut down the seminary and sent everyone to either prison or to die on the Eastern Front 
Dietrich Bonhoeffer himself would die three weeks before his camp was liberated, uh, hung, executed for his opposition to Hitler. And I find myself, particularly during this time of year, as I'm thinking about these sermons, as I'm thinking about my own spiritual journey, drawn to these stories of faith in the most extreme times. If somehow you can cling to Christmas, if you can cling to the hope of Christ in a concentration camp, facing certain death in a cancer ward, then somehow the mystery seems to me to be even more powerful. Those of you who were at the Wednesday night service we did with Mock Yang, we read an excerpt from Father Alphonse Voxman, who himself was killed because he tried to help Jews. Um, a Catholic priest was executed as well. And he talks about going to the manger in such poverty. He says, this year he's in prison. He says, I have no meal. I have no tree. But I kneel before the manger in poverty with the hope that the Christ child will irradiate me with his love as I taste the myrrh of this life. We have an opportunity to think, to ponder with Mary, to take stock of where we're going, what we've done. The great news of Christian faith is that there's always an opportunity to start over. One of my favorite characters, I have this Hall of Fame of characters from my life, and and Tom Jones, I think he was Tom Jones IV, uh, was a combination, I've talked about him before, he was one part John Candy, one part uh, John Belushi. He was, he was just a crazy, wild guy. And um, he's his blessed memory. He died way too young. And um, I, knew, uh, I knew him through kids' sports and things like that. And we developed a friendship. And uh, he would show up about once a year uh, at church. And uh, when, when Tom walked into a room, you knew Tom was in a room. And he always came to the 5 o'clock uh, Christmas Eve service, which was basically the little kid service. <laughs> and so Tom would come rolling in. And, you know, Christmas celebrating for Tom started probably about lunchtime on Christmas Eve. So Tom came in pretty happy, and uh, he, he, he embraced me. I remember the, uh, one of the last times he was, uh, last Christmas Eve services I had with him, he embraced me. He said, Bill Bohr, my good friend Bill Bohr. That's how he always started everything. He goes, do you know why I only come to church once a year? I said, well, Tom, I, I have some, some ideas why you do that. <laughs> he goes, you're so good that I just need one sermon a year, and I think about it all year round. Now, I won't tell you exactly what I said to Tom, because it wouldn't be appropriate. Uh, 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 and we both laughed. But maybe Tom, Tom might be right. Not the part about only coming to church once a year. I don't think that's right. But if we really just have a little glimpse of what tonight means, even if you just have an ounce of faith left, to ponder the idea that God loved us so much to give up everything That the truth of the wilderness, of the truth of the universe, is not found in exploitation, is not found in accumulation, 
is not found in expressions of bullying and power. But the truth of the universe is found in humility and sacrifice. That a revelation, a revelation and a revolution of love began with a teenage mother saying yes to God. What can happen in our lives if we ponder God's yes to us with a new yes to him? In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen and amen.